uh, who's doing some awesome ministry uh, in our city. And I love partnering with ministers like this guy. His name's David Carson. Um, I got to hang out with him a couple of weeks ago at Mountain Goat Coffee Shop. We got, uh, had some good uh, time of fellowship, some caffeine, right? Those two things definitely go together and uh, just create for some awesome ministry uh, conversations, ministry partnerships. And I, I love this guy's story. I can't wait for you to hear it. He, you know, the truth is, is that ministry is not done by superheroes. It's done by people who have been broken, people who have made mistakes, people who have sinned. In fact, that's my story. I don't pastor this church out of my strength. I actually, by God's grace, get to pastor it out of mostly my weaknesses. Um, most of my sin, most of my failures, most of my brokenness has actually been a catalyst to help people, and people like me are all broken sinners in need of healing, in need of redemption, in need of recovery. And the best person to offer recovery to someone who needs it is someone who's in recovery or been recovered or knows what it's like to need recovery. And we love partnering with and hearing about and being with ministries like that um, because that's sort of our story. And that's, that's just the, the, the story of all believers who do ministry, really, is that God calls people all throughout the Bible, like Abraham, who we're reading about in our series on Genesis, who have made mistakes, who have had a past, and who God redeems and he uses. And I love the story we're about to hear. I love David Carson. I love Sammy's mission. I don't want to steal any of his thunder. Let's just give him a round of applause as he comes up and tells us a little bit about himself. It's on. Can everybody hear me? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if y'all be able to understand my southern accent, but um, <laughs> praise God for that. Um, thank you, Pastor Mitch, for having me. And um, and. Thank you for allowing me to get up here and share how, how big and how great Jesus is and, and what he's done in my life. Um, so I, I'll start off like this. I've got about 10 minutes. I'll ramble on and, and tell you how good God is. But um, I grew up in a, a church. I was made to go to church when I was very young, you know, um, and was introduced to God at a, at a young age. And through some very bad choices when I was in high school, um, hanging out with the wrong people, doing the wrong things, and things like that, um, addiction grabbed a hold of me. And I wasn't able to shake it for years and years. Lived a life of misery from the age of around 19, 20, till the age of 37. And um, it's crazy. I was on the way through up here, and I was telling you, Pastor, earlier, right here in these streets of Poe Mill is where it, where it got very bad for me. I lived in these streets around the same neighborhood, homeless, hopeless, in a life of misery, y'all. And I remember uh, just a couple of blocks from here uh, when I was towards the end when I was, before I got clean, just, if you can move all these houses, you could actually see the house that I, I overdosed in a couple of times the week before I got, went for help, or got locked up and then went to get help. But um, that's just how good Jesus is. He, he pulled me out of that pit, y'all. I was the worst of the worst, broken. You know, if it weren't for him, pulling me out of this pit, I'd, I'd be dead, 
You know, there was my my time was coming to an end. In two weeks, it it in the last two weeks it was bad overdose after overdose, and um. And I went through Miracle Hill Overcomers. After I got out of jail, I spent a quite a while in jail, and um, I went through Miracle Hill Overcomers. And this whole time that I was going to church when I was young, I never, I never totally surrendered to God. I wasn't saved, you know. But when I got to Overcomers, man, did God do a work in me. He, uh, I finally, I finally surrendered everything to Him and gave my heart to Jesus. And I guess I kind of made a deal then that I would never run from God. I would chase God for the rest of my life. He pulled me out of that pit and it was amazing, you know. Um, and I've done that. And going through that and, and staying on with Miracle Hill and, and running transition houses for him, God laid it on my heart to help other people like I was once helped, you know. Um, Last November, we started this uh, nonprofit called Sammy's Mission. And what we've done, we started off as an outreach. Over the last years of me being clean and stuff, people reach out to me all the time, and, and I try to get them help, you know. But this, once we started this Sammy's Mission last November, it is, it's been incredible. We have probably, on a uh, given day, two or three people reach out. For help you know and they may be in other states it's crazy I see a guy here now that was in another state that we uh, we helped up here it, I had no clue I've never met him before but his family found out about us and and reached out to us and he's up here now and doing amazing but um that's what we do we we got uh, people reaching out to us and we'll try to get them in a faith-based uh, treatment center, either faith homes or, or overcomers, because um, without God, I believe in faith-based recovery. It's just <laughs> call it white knuckling or whatever. If you ain't got Jesus, you ain't you ain't you ain't got it. You know that's a, that's a fact. I've tried it. Other secular programs where they tell you, uh, you know, give it all to a higher power. That higher power can get you, give be your a doorknob. I'm sorry, that ain't the way it worked. There ain't no doorknob put me where I'm at today. It's all because of him, you know. But um, that's what we do. We try to help people get in treatment. We'll pray for them, you know, pay for them to get up here and pay their intake fee or whatever, whatever it needs to be. And um, in March, we was able to open our first transition house and um, right here in, in Taylor's. And since then, it's this growed a lot. We've got three houses, and I think right now we got 17 men. And um, it ain't nothing about me, y'all. It's about the men in in this place that make Sammy's mission. They're going out and discipling people, the people, and sharing the gospel and and leading people to Christ. I see it all the time. We're like a family, you know. And we 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 go out to churches and we share with people how good God is and. I know there's a lot of people in this church. I'm sure addiction has touched one of y'all's family members, parents, loved ones, or anything. And if there's anything we could help to do, we got pamphlets out here that y'all can grab. Our phone, my phone number's on it. Just pick the phone up and call, and we'll help in any way. You know, it, man or woman, young, old, whatever it may be. But we're just going to churches, sharing the gospel, sharing 
with people that there is a way out in addiction, and that's through Jesus Christ. And that's the only way, you know, and I really believe that. And if you would like to come along beside us and maybe help, pray for us or anything, our number's on the pamphlets out back, and um, you can get with us at the church. You can talk to any of the guys this year, and I want to thank you all for having us in the church. And Mitch, you've been awesome, make me feel right at home. But I, it's really cool, y'all. This is how big God is. Five years ago, I lay dead, not breathing, over here in a house in Poe Mill, you know, with a syringe hanging out my arm. And here we are today in the front of a church in this same neighborhood. In the same, in the same neighborhood. That's how good God is, y'all. But thank y'all for having me. Yeah, amen. I love stories like that, and we are in with Sammy's mission. We'll help however we can, housing people who need help out of addiction. We, you have to understand something about our church. We want this church filled with really, really bad people. Do you understand that? Bring in your worst people. That's who we, we don't want. Good people, have a donut, go to lunch, okay? We're, this is a church for bad people like me who need good news. And that's Jesus' church. Jesus was the only good man ever. And he came to bad people to give them good news, a good God, and a good future. And so we partner, want to partner with Sammy's mission and housing guys who need help. And we love David uh, a lot. So thank you for sharing, David. We are in Genesis 22 this morning. If you want to turn there, Genesis 22. And we are talking about Abraham's big moment. This is the story that he is most famous for. This is his great crescendo in the book. This is the great crescendo of Genesis, great crescendo of Abraham's narrative. It's like an iconic movie scene, really, right? It's like an iconic scene from a famous movie where the hero faces his greatest challenge, sort of outside of him, but also sort of inside of him, where most of our challenges actually come from. Uh, and in the rest of his life, he kind of gets to live in relative peace in the shade of that moment. Having won his battle, he gets to go home. That's sort of this moment for Abraham. It's his epic battle. It's his grand finale. Only unlike movies, which perhaps from time to time are inspired by true events, this story is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is true. It is truth. And out of this story, we can get quite a bit of truths. In fact, you could preach 100 sermons on these verses with 100 different application points, and they'd all get 100% on the test. I mean, they'd all be good. But today, I hope to boil it down to just a couple lessons before we take communion together. Two big points, and my two big points from this story that Anita read for us in Genesis 22, my two big points are these. One is that God asks a lot of us. Two, but God never asks more from us than he is willing to give to us. Those are the two big points I get from Genesis 22. God asks a lot of us. You can see this in the first couple of verses. Genesis 22, 1 and 2. Came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham, or he tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham. And he said, Behold, here am I. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, 
and get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. That's a lot to ask. Right, like, can you imagine getting this word from the Lord? Can you imagine having this task on your to-do list? Can you imagine, can you even comprehend such a harrowing order? I mean, imagine the scene. You're Abraham, right? You and your wife have waited decades for this miracle baby. You had this baby in your old age. You were 90. She was 100. Then Isaac was born. Your one son between the two of you, right? The promised child comes from a miracle. You raise him. You wean him. He is now a young man, or the Bible calls him a lad, which in the Hebrew would be between 17 and 33, somewhere in there. You have gone through life with him as an adolescence. You have raised him, fed him, clothed him, bathed him. He is now a young man. He is at the point in life where he is to be taking over for you. He is to be taking over the property, taking over the work, taking over the family business. He's supposed to be taking care of you and your elderly wife. It's an exciting season. Then the Lord shows up to you one morning, calls your name, and you say, Yes, Lord, what can I do for you? And he says, offer your only son, the son you love, up for the sins of your household. After all, Isaac is to be a burnt offering on an altar on top of a mountain. I mean, Lord, that is so much to ask. Now, here's something interesting. In one sense, the Lord is aware of this. The, the Lord knows this is a lot to ask of Abraham. You can tell by the language in this chapter and in this text. And in another sense, the Lord is not apologizing for asking whatever he wants of Abraham. The Lord is comfortable asking a lot of us. Because, first of all, it's only fair. I mean, we're in sin. We deserve to die for our sins. You do realize we'd all be Isaac if it wasn't for Jesus. We'd all have to be burnt offerings. We'd all have to pay for our sin and the sins of our house. We would all be laid on the altar if someone wasn't laid on the altar for us eventually. If it weren't for grace, if it weren't for the gospel, this is only fair. To ask a sinner to be a burnt offering makes total sense in God's economy. Additionally, he can ask from us whatever he wants because everything is his. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. We're in the book of Genesis. How's it start? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He made us, not we ourselves. Right? God formed us and knit us together in our mother's womb, Psalm 139. So we are his and he can ask of us whatever he wishes. And he often, sometimes, will ask us to do hard things. He asks a lot of us. For example, God asks us to endure testing. God did come to test Abraham. Does God test us? Yes. And sometimes those tests are hard. You either have been tested, you're being tested, or one day will be tested by God. Now I know, like me, some of you just got really nervous. This makes us nervous, doesn't it? Some of us, we get nervous before a test, don't we? So I want to help us think of these tests a little bit, just to be careful. Right? We've got to be careful how we think of these tests, for example, in terms of frequency. Okay? 
not everything is a test, right? When you get a little OCD about these things, you can start thinking, man, everything that comes your way is a test from God. Not everything's a test, okay? You had Olive Garden. There's one breadstick left. You want it. Your friend wants it. Are you going to take it for yourself? Are you going to be giving? Are you going to go halvesies but kind of be mad about it? That's not necessarily a test from the Lord, okay? Not everything's a test. But you have to also understand, not nothing's a test, not everything's from the devil. Not everything is a trial. Not everything is the world. Not everything is the flesh. Sometimes God does come to us to test us. You say, what's the difference between a test and a non-test? Well, let me give you some relief here this morning. The Bible never calls us to know. Abraham doesn't know this is a test. It is not your responsibility to know. Is that God? Is that the devil? Is that the world? Is that sin? Is that flesh? Am I being tested or not? It's not your responsibility to know. Your one responsibility is actually just to follow Jesus. That's your, that's your responsibility. Here's what you're on the hook for. Obey God, no matter what it is coming your way. You see, it's not like we get options. Like, wait a minute, is this a test from the Lord? If so, I'm going to do right. But if it's not a test from the Lord, I'm going to do what I want to do. Is that cool? No. See, you're on the hook to obey whatever it is. You don't ever need to know if it's God testing you necessarily. Sometimes it is clear it's God. Sometimes it's clear afterwards that it was God, like in Abraham's case. But that's not what you need to worry about. What you need to be worry about, your responsibility, your obligation, is to simply follow Jesus at all times, no matter what the season is. So we have to be careful when it comes to frequency. Not everything is a test. But not nothing is a test. And our job is to follow Jesus. We also got to be careful in how we think of these tests in terms of substance. Like, what's the point of God's tests? Because these, thank the Lord, are not like the tests we took in school. Okay? A lot different. These are not tests, pass, fail, you know, star on the chore chart, or a, like when I was little, we got markers. And if you got too many markers, I had to go to the principal's office and whatever. Luckily, I was coming up right when spanking became illegal, or else I don't know if I'd be standing today, but right? you, you got a marker, right? It's not like that. Okay? This is not about earning God's love. It's not that if you pass, you get God's love. If you fail, you don't. Abraham's already failed tests up to this point. He's going to pass this one today, but he's already failed. And he hasn't lost God's love, and you won't either. This isn't even always, and I know this is hard to swallow at first, but this isn't even always about God blessing us. God, does, it's not like you pass, you get a blessing, you fail, you don't get a blessing. There could be some things like that to some degree, mostly an earthly degree, but the heavenly blessing is not dependent on your passing or failing. Abraham received the covenant from God way before chapter 22 when he passed this test. God came to Abraham back in chapter 12 when Abraham was living in South Babylon as a pagan. And God came to him then before he took any test, pass or fail. God said, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to give you a promised land. And from you will come the blessing for all families of the earth. And we know that that is Jesus Christ. He got Jesus whether or not he passed or failed. That's the good news. Right, so these aren't even all about God's blessings for us sometimes. Say, what are these tests about? These tests confirm our faith. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, write that verse down. It's all about our testing. 
It says that the testing of our faith is like putting gold into a fire. It's this precious metal. Our faith is precious to God. When he tests our faith, it is like putting gold into the fire. And one of two things happens. Either we see its purity or the fire purifies it so that it can be pure. That's what God's testing is all about. You pass the test, it shows your faith is in God. You fail the test, it shows you're trusting something other than God so that you can repent and grow, which in and of itself is an act of faith. It purifies your faith. So it proves your faith, confirms your faith. Testing refines your faith like gold in a fire. It demonstrates the purity of your faith or it purifies it further. That's what this story does for Abraham. That's what this test does for Abraham. That's what this story shows us. It exposes for us the faith of Abraham. It shows us where his faith really is. It shows us what he really trusts. So what does Abraham really believe? Well, we find out through the test. It's actually given to us in the New Testament of the Bible. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, it gives us insight into the heart of Abraham during this whole episode. It says this, By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac, And he that received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac thy seed shall be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure, or figuratively speaking. Right, so I don't want to erase all the pain and the emotion and the, the gut-wrenching emotion Abraham's going through, but if you're wondering how Abraham can even stomach this command and how he can even go through with raising the knife. What is in his mind? What is in his heart? What is Abraham thinking? What is Abraham believing? He is believing that God is able to raise Isaac up from the dead. After all, he received Isaac from the dead, figuratively speaking. In other words, Abraham was 90, Sarah was 100. They were both struggling with infertility. Their bodies were, in one sense, dead. And yet, out of that death, God raised Isaac to life. So Abraham is saying, God is going to make of me a great nation. God's going to give me and my seed the promised land. Out of my seed will come the Messiah who saves the world And God can do that through a living Isaac, or God can do that through a dead Isaac, because God can raise Isaac from the dead. Literally, this test exposes for us that Abraham is trusting in resurrection. He trusts the resurrection before, thousands of years before he could see it. Because that's what faith is, believing something you cannot see. I mean, it's almost crazy convicting. Abraham trusts resurrection more than I do many times. And I'm on this side of the New Testament. I'm on this side of history where we have a mountain of evidence for a resurrection, the resurrected Jesus. Do you trust resurrection? Say, how do I know? You'll know through the test. So you may not even know. I mean, you can mentally assent to resurrection. You can think you trust resurrection. You could say you trust resurrection. But you'll know when you know if you trust the resurrection. It'll become very apparent through the test. When a loved one gets a diagnosis or when you get a diagnosis that is unfavorable, 
when you have that brush with death, when you get a glimpse of the brevity of life and just how quick it is, if you start to believe, I have got to survive at all costs, it might be that you trust in the here and now, that this world is your home. If you think, I would love to survive, but thy will be done. I'll see him again. I'm not going anywhere. My body goes to the ground. My soul will be fine. Then it might be that that test reveals you believe in the resurrection. Jesus' gospel, Jesus' grace, Jesus' eternal life. Though he be dead, yet shall he live. Whoever believes in me will never die. I am the resurrection and the life. You trust that? You'll know when you get the test. It exposes our faith. It exposes Abraham's faith. Now he knows what he really believes. Now Isaac knows what he really believes. Now the angels know what he believes. Now the demons know what he believes. The tests of God are not to crush us. They are to purify us. They are not to show us how terrible we are. They are to show us how pure the faith he's given us is. They are really a gift in the long run. Though while they're going on, they can be the worst. That's okay to admit. You think it's irreverent to be like, hey, offering up my son, not my best weekend, right? You think God would be like, how dare you say that? No, he knows. His tests are hard. He asks us to do some hard things. He asks a lot of us. He asks us to endure testing, which are a gift in the long run. They expose our faith for us and to us. They show us what we really believe so that we might grow if we need to. But yeah, there are a lot of drama. In fact, one of the things God asks of us, he asks a lot of us, one of the things he asks of us is to endure the drama of obedience. I mean, check out the drama of this story. Look at verse 3. Abraham rose up early in the morning. You think? You think he could sleep? You think he's like, ah, I'm going to take an all-nighter here. I'm, I'm going to be fine and just sleep in. Nothing going on, really. No, he can't sleep a wink, so he gets up, right? He has to face his son with a knife. He's terrified. He saddled his donkey, and he took two of his young men with him. Isaac, his son, claved the wood for the burnt offering. They rose up. They went to a place which God had told him. Then on the third day, get that, Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he saw the place afar off. I mean, just thinking about this stresses me out. I mean, this place, Mount Moriah, where he goes to sacrifice Isaac, is a three-day walk. For three days, he has to somehow make small talk. We quit doing the meet and greet because most of us didn't want to do small talk for three minutes. And that in COVID, we didn't want you to die, right? There's like small talk for three days. I got three days with these guys. None of them knows what's about to happen. I know what's about to happen. Every time he hears Isaac laugh, his heart sinks. Every time he hears the clanking of the wood on the back of the donkey up the mountain, his chest starts to feel tight. I mean, for three days, he has to wonder, how am I going to explain this to Sarah? I mean, I imagine he is sweating bullets. I imagine he is fighting back tears. He's wondering, is there any other way? Let this cup pass from me. Does it sound familiar? And then in verse 4, it says, he sees the place afar off. So now he knows this is really happening. This is go time. No more wondering. I mean, this is severely dramatic for Abraham. Look at verse 5. Abraham said to his young men, right, abide here with the donkey. I and the lad will go yonder and worship. 
and come to you again. I can kind of hear his voice shaking when he says this. I mean, he believes that they'll return again, but he doesn't know for a fact yet. He's living on faith. But did you notice it says he's going to worship, and part of his worship is going to be this dramatic obedience. Verse 6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it upon Isaac, his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went, both of them together, up the mountain. He has to watch his son carry the wood of his own altar up the hill. Sound familiar? His son starts to get a whiff of what's going on, what's going to happen. Look at verse 7. Isaac spake to Abraham, his father, said, my father, he said, here I am, son. And he said, behold, the fire, the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And at this point, I mean, I can almost hear Abraham's heart beating out of his chest, can't you? His sweet son, his precious son is getting clearer and clearer on the fact that something's wrong. Something is missing. And I think Abraham's probably doing everything he can not to break. Look at verse 8. Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself a lamb. Abraham doesn't even know how correct he is. Sound familiar? So they went, both of them together, and they came to a place which God had told him of. Abraham built an altar there, laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him upon the altar of wood. I mean, what? Drama. He builds an altar and then takes the cords meant for the animal and starts binding his son. I mean, what's Isaac doing at this point? We don't really know from this text. Is he screaming? Is he asking some really loud questions? Is he, you know, crying? Or is he calm and laying down his life because he has the faith of his father that he will rise from death? I mean, it's a dramatic scene either way. Look at verse 10. Abraham stretched forth his hand And took the knife to slay his son. He raised the knife. What astounding obedience. He raised the knife. He raised the knife. Likely to take him in one blow so his son doesn't have to suffer any extra. He raised the knife. I mean, imagine the mental anguish. Imagine the nerves the drama of it all. Abraham has to go through so much drama. And it's not until after all this drama that God stops him. Verse 11, the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and here's the sigh of relief heard round the world. Here am I. We switch this up. Yes, I'm here. I'm really hoping you got good news. Verse 12, and he does. He said, lay not thy hand upon the lad, neither do anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son for me. God stops him. Abraham is smiling, right? He's probably crying tears of relief. He is letting go a whole bunch of stress that's been on him for the whole three days. He finds out it was never God's plan for him to slay his son. It was never God's plan for Isaac to die. It was not God's plan for blood to be shed. But this is what you've got to get. It was God's plan for Abraham to endure the drama of obedience. 
God could have stopped him when he left that first morning three days ago. God could have stopped him while he was building the altar, but God waited till the end. Because that's when Abraham's fear of God, that's when Abraham's faith was on full display for all to see for thousands of years. That's when God's glory was on full display for all to see for thousands of years. As we'll see in a moment, this is all foreshadowing what God actually went through and did do for us. Here's something we learn from this story. That contrary to a lot of preaching, maybe even at times my own preaching, following Jesus does not mean a drama-free life. It's just a different drama. It is a holy drama. Sometimes as preachers, we like to sell you Jesus like a cleaning product. We're like the ShamWow guy. Like, hey, following Jesus is three easy steps. Obey Jesus. It'll be a snap. Simple decision. Make life a breeze. And in some sense, there's some truth to that. Because the way of the transgressor is hard. And his load is easy. His burden is light. There's some truth to that. However, there's also some truth to this idea that we can start obeying God and everything gets harder. That sometimes we obey God and everything gets crazier and more strenuous and you suffer. The truth is God asks us to do some really hard things and they don't necessarily sometimes lead to no drama but a holy drama. You see, you're suffering for a point. Your suffering produces fruit. Your suffering is, is, is an act of worship, but it's still suffering. And don't think you're off the hook just because you're not a patriarch. God calls us to the same thing in one sense. He called Abraham and Isaac to. Romans 12.1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. God sometimes calls us to be Abraham, to be Isaac. God calls us to endure some holy drama in obedience. Now, to be clear, he's never going to ask us to sacrifice someone. Right? You'll see that this is a unique one-time thing for Abraham, and it shows off God who does sacrifice his son for us. In the end, God's not really even asking Abraham to sacrifice his son. He's just showing a picture of God doing that in our place. So we don't have to sacrifice anyone. We don't have to sacrifice for ourselves, for our sins. Jesus did all of that for us. He is the sacrifice. But what does God ask us to do? What's God ask you to do in this age? Whatever you want to call it, age of grace, church age, new covenant, right? Right now, what's God asking you to do? It's simple. He is asking you to follow Jesus. Hebrews 1.1. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. That's his command for you, for me, for the New Testament believer. His ask, his call is to follow Jesus. And here's what you need to know, that sometimes following Jesus will bring some holy drama into your life. Just ask the 12 disciples. You might follow Jesus into a conversation where you need to apologize and it gets dramatic. 
You might follow Jesus in a servant at church, and instead of it being this super lovely, happy, easy thing, you mess up, and you got to grow, and you got to work with people, and you guys think differently, and there's actually some endurance needed. It's a place of labor. It's really serving. And it brings some holy drama into your life. You might follow Jesus into the lives of the poor and they ask you for something every 30 days and now you got less free time, less money, and more drama. This summer, we had the opportunity to do rebuild projects on five homes in Poe Mill. That's following Jesus. We partnered with an organization called Rebuild Upstate. Some people couldn't afford to rebuild their homes or remodel their homes, so we did it with volunteers, and we did it with some donated money. It was an awesome time. One of those projects, we had to get a ramp from the porch to the driveway for a widow. That's following Jesus. Jesus loves the widows. And they needed a handicap ramp from the porch to the driveway. On this particular Saturday, my only job was to get volunteers there. I was to show up, lead in prayer, get them started, and go on my way. That was my job for the day. I was supposed to get 10 or 12 volunteers to come help rebuild this house. And part of that was the handicap ramp. Only I couldn't get 10 to 12 volunteers. I got like six or seven. So when I showed up and saw there was only six or seven, and I saw the scope of the project, I knew that I had to follow Jesus and stay and help with the project, help put the widows ramp together. And within an hour, I was on something called an auger. You ever been on an auger? You ever used an auger? Have you ever augged? You ever aug? My arms were feeling like jelly for three days. It's like this jackhammer from the devil, and you're going down into this dirt, and you put it in the wrong place. You've got to do a new hole, cover that one, put the pipe thing down so you can do the ramp. Here I am, Saturday, out in the hot summer sun, ogging. I was supposed to be on my porch with orange juice, arguing with people about politics on Twitter. It was supposed to be Saturday for me, having some fun, but instead I'm ogging. I want you to understand that following Jesus, there are times, he asks a lot of us, including sometimes the drama of obedience, the difficulty of obedience. That's true. And that's part of this story of Abraham. Some of you, you have drama in your lives, and that's not the problem. The problem is the wrong kind of drama. You're not supposed to be suffering for your sin. You're supposed to be suffering because you're fighting your sin. Amen? You're not supposed to be suffering because nobody serves you. You're supposed to be suffering because you're serving everybody else. Jesus asks a lot of us. He asks us to follow him. What's your next step in following him? What's your next step in obeying him? What's your next step in looking like, walking like, talking like, living like, loving like Jesus? Whatever it is, here's what I'm going to tell you, that it might be a hard thing to do. He might ask a lot of you. He might ask you to endure testing. He might ask you to endure the drama of obedience, but... God never asks more from us than he is willing to give to us. Keep reading the story. Verse 13, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him, oh, this is beautiful, a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. This is great news. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering instead of his son. The language of substitution. 
Not in Romans, all the way back in the beginning. In Genesis, verse 14, Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, which means God will provide just as Abraham had said. God does provide the lamb. As it is to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. Verse 15, the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of the heavens a second time. He's going to reiterate the covenant with him again. Verse 16, he said, by myself I have sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thy only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of its enemies. In other words, you are willing to give up one son, I'm going to give you a million sons. And here's the ultimate blessing. The son of God is coming. It's foreshadowed in the next verse, verse 18, in thy seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed. We know now that that was the coming of Jesus that accomplished that because thou hast obeyed my voice. Beautiful, wonderful, amazing, phenomenal, unbelievable, incomprehensible, glorious. This is great news. God asks a lot of us, but he's not asking more from us than he's giving to us. And what does he give? I'll focus in on this. He gives us a substitute. In verse 13, a ram is caught in a thicket to place on the altar for sin instead of Isaac, instead of us. This is a great parallel to Jesus. This story is a great foreshadowing of Jesus. That's one of the big points of this story. The big point of the story really isn't even about our obedience. It isn't even about Abraham, really. I mean, it's about Jesus. I mean, you could talk for hours on how this all points to Jesus. Abraham is a loving father like God is a loving father. Abraham thinks of his son as good as dead, basically, for three days. God the father, in one sense, gives up his son for three days. Abraham expected a resurrection. God the father also expected a resurrection. Isaac is like Jesus. Isaac points to Jesus. He's the obedient son who lays down his life. Jesus is the obedient son who lays down his life. Abraham goes to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah. Later in the scriptures, that's the Temple Mount. In the New Testament Bible, that's where we find the hill called Golgotha, where God the Father does offer up his son 2,000 years later. This all happens while Isaac is a young man. Jesus dies as a young man, 33. In so many ways, Isaac parallels Jesus. But he's not just like Jesus. And Jesus isn't just like Isaac. Isaac gets up off the altar. That's why Jesus is also foreshadowed in the ram caught in the thicket who lays down on the altar. Jesus could have been Isaac. Jesus could have gotten up off the cross. He could have called down legions of angels and left us to be our own burnt offering. But he loves you. He loves you a lot. So Jesus does lay down his life in our place as our substitute. Jesus dies for our sins. Jesus is like the ram caught in the thicket. He is offered up in our place as a burnt offering for our sins for Abraham's sins, for Isaac's sins, for my sins, for your sins. God will provide a lamb. God has provided a lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Jesus Christ. Worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the lamb. 
I mean, what love is this? I mean, we have sons, don't we? My son Alden turns five tomorrow. Shocker, he has a cold, so he's at home. He gets a cold every time he wakes up, basically. Every two days, I'm over at CVS getting something because he just gets a cold. You look at him wrong, and he starts sneezing at you. So he can't be here today, but Alden turns five tomorrow. I love my son. Don't you love your son? I love my son. My son is hilarious. The other day, my son taped the door completely shut so I couldn't get out of my room as a prank. I hear him cracking up on the other side of the door. I'm like, what's going on? I start to open the door, all this tape. Well, first of all, we need the tape. Okay, we use that tape. It's like, it's not a toy. It's like just our tape from the office of the house. And just, all this tape just starts, and he's like, ha, I can't get out. Fire hazard. Right? You pray for me. I love my son, right? I would die for my son a thousand deaths. So I feed my son. I'd spend every dime on my son. I, spend, I would spend all night with my son. I have. He has those colds. He's got asthma. I've spent four or five all-nighters in emergency rooms with him. I'd do it all again. Love my son. But imagine I love you so much I'm willing to give up my son for you. That's a lot of love. And that's how much God loves us. God loved his son, but God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God loves his son, but God loves you, so he crushed his son so that you could go free and be forgiven and have eternal life and resurrection. I mean, what love is this? It's so much love that it proves to us that no matter what he asks of us, we can trust him in it because it is coming from a place of great and wonderful, amazing, astounding love. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Worthy is the Lamb. This means that we can trust him. I said earlier, you get a little nervous when you think about these tests, don't you? And it doesn't sound super fun to go through all this obedience, does it? And somehow in the end, this is a gift, somehow, right? It is, because through all of it, you can trust him. Because he never asks more from us than he's willing to give to us. So this means we can trust him. Get this, here's some good news for you. I want to apply this to you right now. You can trust him with your failed tests. You can trust him when you fail the test. If you fail all your tests, you fail every test, you can still trust him because there's a substitute for your sin. You don't have to die for your sin. You don't have to pay for your sin. We just sang, Jesus paid it all. So even if you fail, there is a substitute and there is forgiveness and there is grace for you in your failure so that even your failure doesn't make you lose the love of God or even most of, if not all of, sometimes the blessings of God. He will not abandon you in your failure. Jesus was abandoned for you so that he might never leave you nor forsake you. We can trust God. We can trust that he is not callous towards us, giving us tests like they do in school just to see how good we are or are not, but rather our testing is precious. Our faith is precious. We're so precious to him that he took us off the altar and put his son on the altar, purchasing us with his own blood. So he is not like false gods who put you through some rigor just to show you who's boss, but rather he does this to strengthen us, to purify us, and to refine us because he loves us. That's why he asks obedience of us. 
And we can trust him with whatever he asks us to give up for him. Whatever he asks us to sacrifice, we can trust that he'll be watching and he'll be ready to fulfill our needs and sustain us through our sacrifice. I mean, can you see how God has sustained you this far? Every meal, every drink, every breath, every blessing, come thou fount of every blessing. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Everyone that forsakes houses or brethren or sisters or mother or father or wife or children or land for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. Whoever believes on me will never thirst. God sustains us through our sacrifice. The same is true for Abraham. God sustained him. Through this whole moment. By the time you turn to the next chapter, 24 verse 1, it says that Abraham was blessed in all things. You turn another page. Abraham, in chapter 25 verse 1, gets remarried after Sarah's death. This is in his like old, old age. And he has six more sons. Six more. I mean, it's incredible. It says, he took a wife named Keturah. She bare him Zimran and Jokshan and Medan and Midian and Ik. Ishba and Shua, I mean, their family photo looked like a missionary prayer card, right? His quiver is so full in this moment, right? Like his house could host a youth rally just from within. I mean, this homeschool's got a principal. He has six more sons before he dies. God sustains him, and God sustains us through whatever we have to sacrifice for him. He not only gives us a substitute for when, he, when we disobey, he gives us sustenance for when we have to obey, So that we might come to the end of our movie with confidence. That we might win our epic battle. That we might overcome our enemy without and within. That we might glorify him with the iconic scenes of our own lives. Yes, God asks a lot of us. But he never asks more from us than he's willing to give to us. And we're going to ponder all these things as we take communion. JJ's coming up. Andrew's coming up. And J.J. is going to lead us in a time of communion. As you came in, you got the elements. And J.J. will instruct us what to do next and how to take those together. I'll pray, and then J.J. will lead. Jesus, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time. Thank you for David and Sammy's mission, and thank you for your love for our church. Thank you that we are bad people who get good news, that we have a substitute and a sustainer during all that you've called us to do. In the midst of all you've called us to give up, In the midst of all, you called us to obey. Jesus, thank you for your blood and your body. That is our um, substitute, our ram caught in the thicket, that we might have a real life with you. And sometimes there's some holy drama in that life, but we thank you for it as it sustains us, as you sustain us and it sanctifies us. In Jesus' name, amen.